At the beginning of Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 1, and um, I'm picking it up in verse 9. Last week, as uh, Susie said, we reread from the beginning of the Gospel, the announcement, the title, if you will, of the whole Gospel, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. And then we looked at John the Baptist in the wilderness and saying to people, will you come and get ready for what God's going to do next? And declares that he would baptise with water, but one would come who would baptise in the Spirit. God would be at work. And the bit we're picking up really is where Jesus comes and is part of that. This is how Mark writes it. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And at once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Mark was writing this gospel to early Christians. Probably, many think, these Christians, initially the first group that he wrote to, were probably in Rome. They were people who had already surrendered their life to Jesus. They were already followers of Jesus. You might know this, but Paul's letters to the churches were written much earlier than the gospels. So although the Gospels come first in the Bible in the New Testament, you might think, well, they were first. No, 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 no. It's quite the opposite way around, that Paul knew about the Christians. Christians had been turning to Jesus, hearing the good news. And the way they were doing it is because people had been there and they were the eyewitnesses saying, actually, everything's changed. And Paul is writing in the epistles to church to say, actually, this is how to live as a Christian. But these Gospels come along and they want to make sure that you know exactly who Jesus is. It's an obvious point. But there's no part of the gospel where Jesus is not the centre uh, centre, uh, centre stage. It's an obvious point to make. But there's no part of the gospel where it's not about Jesus. And there's some things where you've got Jesus at the centre and he's going to be telling us How how do you live as people of the kingdom? How do you live as followers of me? But there's sometimes where you read and it's just, do you understand who I am? Can you see who I am? And this little passage of Jesus, the water and the wilderness, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, is really for you and me and for Christians for 2,000 years to go, can you see the sort of Jesus you've got? Much better than one you'd make in your own image. This is the Jesus. There's a new film out that some of you might be aware of and some of you might even end up going to see or you might wait for it to come through uh, the TV. But it's called Silence. Um, It's a film uh, made, produced by Martin Scorsese, who's like like one of our major film uh, directors of of our lifetime, really. And amongst other things, Scorsese is known as a devout Catholic who's always exploring faith. 
All right, so whenever you read an interview about him, the thing that people are really interested about is tell me about your faith and how your faith reflects in film. And sometimes his films are directly more religious oriented and sometimes the gangs of New York didn't have much to do with the church. Um, But Scorsese is really one of the, the directors who's thinking about what does faith look like in the 21st century. His latest film is actually set in the 17th century. And it's about Portuguese Catholic uh, missionaries who go to Japan. It's based upon a real event, based upon a novel that was written in the early 60s. And it's all about how um, there were some missionaries in Japan and they were being persecuted for the faith. And the Christians were being persecuted for faith. And it's all about, will you stand if persecution hits? And uh, some of those early missionaries did and some of those early missionaries sort of reneged on their faith. They went back on it. And they sent another group of missionaries out to Japan to see what had happened. And this film is about this. I want to show you just the trailer for it, and then I will tell you why I'm talking about it. <coughs> Our Lord said to them, go ye into the whole world and preach the gospel to every living creature. He denounced God in public and surrendered the faith. That's not possible. But Ferreira risked his life to spread our faith all over Japan. It seems to me that our mission here is more urgent than ever. We must go find Father Ferreira. This is in your hearts and both of us. And I must trust God to do that. The moment you set foot in that country, you step into high danger. I'm interesting at a time when uh, uh, faith is sometimes seen as being on the back burner. Actually, it's being portrayed and talked about and discussed and explored in cinemas all over this city and over the land. And you might want to go and see it. But what caught my eye was not necessarily just the film, but was the young guy who played uh, one of the lead roles. You can see his name at the top, Andrew Garfield. This week, he was quoted, um, he, he had a long interview talking about his, um, 
his piece in the play, in the, in the film. And one of the things he did as uh, preparation for the film is he spent a year um, with priests and monks trying to find out what does it mean to be a Christian. Spent a year doing that. And this is what he wrote, or this is what he said in an interview. What was really easy was falling in love with the person, was falling in love with Jesus Christ. That was the most surprising thing. The reporter wrote, he fell silent at the thought of it, clearly moved to emotion. He clutched his chest just below the sternum, somewhere between his gut and his heart. And what he said next came out through bursts of laughter. God, that was the most remarkable thing, falling in love and how easy it was to fall in love with Jesus. Interesting. There's someone who, no faith background, but spending a year thinking about the work of these missionaries in the 17th century, and actually, but wanting to know what's it all about, at the end of it, comes and goes, actually, do you know what? That's what I found was remarkably easy, falling in love with Jesus. Sounds like he's been in revival meetings for a whole year, doesn't it? When I was reading it and uh, seeing it this week, it reminded me, and it kind of, because I was preparing for this at the same time, it seems that that's what Mark wants you to do, is to see Jesus again, not that you might understand more, but that actually you might, and for some of you, we might struggle with the language, but that you might fall in love with Jesus. I wonder whether for some of us, we've been going on the path so long, it's easy to have conversation about him, to discuss him, to debate him, to think about the ideas. But actually, that idea of, actually, I love him. And it's remarkably easy to fall in love with this Jesus. But to do that, I need to see him again. I need to see him clearly. He went on in the interview to say the flip side of that. I felt so bad for Jesus and angry on his behalf when I finally did meet him because everyone has given him such a bad name. So many people have given him such a name and he's been used for so many dark things. It's the flip side. Suddenly I realise who Jesus is. But actually, when you do, you realise how angry it makes you feel when people have done so much in the name of Jesus. There's damaged so many people. A young 30-something person who came from no faith, who was exposed to the story of Jesus, and said, actually, do you know what? It was fantastic. Well, my prayer for myself is that when I'm reading through this gospel again slowly, I wonder if that could happen again. I wonder if it could happen again. And to do that, sometimes you have to slow down. You have to read slowly. Because the problem is that if you've been around a while, you've read, these gospel, you've read this gospel before, and your danger is your eyes slip down the page when you're reading it. Because you kind of know what's going to come next. And it's easy to read the Gospels and it's easy to read them really badly. 
really badly. Do you remember when we did the house group? Do you remember when we were in the house group together in Alice's flat? And we read the gospel, and you can read the gospel out loud, um, quite a lot of it in an hour, and that's what we did. Some of you know this story, but it bears repeating. I had the oldest house group in Christendom. <laughs> Shirley was the youngest. She was like the youth group of the, church, of the house group. And um, we had people who were, they were really old at that time, weren't they? They're with the Lord now, but that had nothing to do with the house group. Um... And uh, when we got together, they said, you know, what do we want to do? And uh, what do we want to do in this group? And they said, oh, actually, we want, somebody said, we want deep teaching. They're with the Lord now. Um, they, and, and I thought, oh. So what we decided we would do is we would read out loud. And I grew during those years so much. Because as you read the Bible out loud, you hear it again. And it stops your eyes slipping down the page. And so we begin. Where does the story of Jesus begin in Mark's gospel? Well, it begins here on a muddy riverbank. That is the River Jordan. That is one of the places where John would have been. And it, as you can see, with the exception of one or two buildings, perhaps, it probably didn't look very much different 2,000 years ago. And John the Baptist is in the wilderness. And he's bringing people. And people are coming. They're flocking to him. They're coming up from Jerusalem to stand with John and say, we want something new. And in the queues to get baptised, there's one person from Nazareth, Jesus. You might imagine yourself in the queue, ready to get baptised, waiting to get baptised. And you just become aware that this guy in front of you, he speaks with a different sort of accent because he's from the north, not from the south. And you might want to ask, who are you and why have you come down here? And it's Jesus. Jesus standing with everybody else who goes, we're the sinners. We want to get right with God. Where's the first place you see Jesus? On a muddy riverbank, standing with all the sinners. In solidarity saying, actually, I'm here with you. I'm here to get baptised with you. I'm here because I want God to do something new. To join the crowds, to come and meet John and He's baptised. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. This is something that actually... It seems only Jesus saw and heard at this point. But this is what happens when Jesus gets baptised. Just see what is going on. Firstly, what does he see? He sees heaven being torn open. No neatness from God's perspective, but a tearing. In the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah, one of the prophets, had almost had this heart cry, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. 
It's like one of those moments where uh, the people of God were going, oh God, if you could just do something, rend the heavens, tear them open, God. And here, that's exactly what happens. All heaven is let loose. And the heavens are torn open. Not that we might make our way to God, but that God would come close to us. Secondly, the spirit descends on him like a dove. The gentleness, but the the reality of the Holy Spirit coming and resting on Jesus. And you can't help but read it. And remember that way back in the beginning, the spirit hovered over the waters of chaos. But now the spirit is coming upon Jesus, the anointed one. And a voice comes from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. And as it was for Jesus, so it is for us. Before any ministry begins, it's about intimacy. It's about the father saying, I love you. It's identity before anything you do. And for some of you, this matters more than others, but let me just, let me just run through it a little. One of the things that becomes really good news when you first follow Jesus is this. You find that your life is more useful than you imagined. You find that your life is more useful than you imagined. And you find that you are more valued than you thought. And one of the ways God does that is he gives you the gifts of the Spirit. And you're able to use them for other people. And they they take a whole range of forms, but you're able to be used by other people. And one of the difficulties that can come to all of us is as time goes by, your life shape changes. And therefore, some of the ways that we used back then are not the same ways you're used back now. And we can struggle with that. Because way, 20 years ago, you might have been at the thick of things. And now, it's not like that. Now there's younger folk who were the same age as you were 20 years ago. And you wonder where you fit. And we all face it. We all face it. And what happens for Jesus is a reminder of the significance that needs to happen for all of us. You're more important than all the things you do. You're valued not because of what you can do or what you have done or what you might do. You're valued because of who you are. And the Spirit comes and rests on Jesus before Mark tells us he's done anything. And that means that at whatever stage of life we're at, that continues to be true. It's easy for some of us, and I would put my hand up here and go, I understand this from the inside. That you gain your sense of identity from who, what you do and what other people think of you and what other people say about you. But actually, this falling in love with Jesus a bit about again, is the one who comes to us and says, regardless of what you do, you're mine. You're mine. 
You're my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. And it wouldn't be inappropriate to go, well, why are you pleased with him? He's, he's, he's not, he doesn't seem to have done anything yet. Pleased because he's open. Pleased because he's there. Pleased because he's in the place that says, I want to be yours. And what happened to Jesus is the same that needs to happen to me. Where was he? He was in the wilderness. He's in the desert, rather, at the riverbank. He's in the water. And where's the third place you see him? In the desert. And that's, that is the desert. Obviously, at the time, there wasn't a four-by-four four and a road running through it in the same way. But that is the desert. That's the place where the Spirit sends him. And that word for the Spirit sending is a, a violent word. It's an expulsion word. It's kind of like you might expect as a reader to think, right, brilliant, Jesus is here. Now let's get on with things. But no, 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 the first thing that happens is Jesus gets sent into the wilderness. And Mark, uh, Mark doesn't tell us all the details that Matthew has and Luke has. Doesn't say about what the temptations were. Just says he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted or tested by Satan. Who's Satan? Satan is the one who wants to disrupt all of God's good creation. Satan is the one who acts exactly opposite to all that God wants. And Satan is the one that Jesus goes into the wilderness to battle. He was with the wild animals. This was a place of danger. And angels attended him. He was never alone. This is going to be the context, the contest that Jesus has all the way through his ministry. Jesus and Satan. Your enemy... Jesus is going to be wanting to say to everybody, your enemy is not the people that you think are against you. Your enemy is the one who wants to disrupt all of God's good creation. Paul will say it much better than that. He will say, we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against powers and principalities. And Jesus, the first thing he does is he goes into the wilderness and takes on the enemy of God and overcomes This is going to be the contest. And he does it because you're my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. That phrase is going to crop up twice more in the Gospel of Mark. It's going to crop up at the moment of transfiguration, halfway through the Gospel, almost exactly halfway through the Gospel. That voice is going to come back again and say, you are my son. And at the moment of crucifixion, a Roman soldier is going to say, here is the Son of God. Three times Mark is going to use the same sort of language. And it's at three moments, the beginning, the middle, and the end. This is the one who holds it all together. This is the one who stands with us in solidarity. This is the one who knows his identity is most significant. This is the one who fights and defeats the enemy. And Andrew Garfield said, that's the one I fell in love with.
This is a sermon where there's nothing for you to do as a result of. This is a sermon that simply says, can you see this is the Jesus that you worship? The Jesus who stands with you in your own sinfulness. The Jesus who's obedient and loved by the Father. Jesus who takes on the enemy and overcomes him. This is your Jesus. That's how Mark starts his story of Jesus. Because that's the one we worship. That's the one we adore. We've got a moment. Why don't you just take a, a moment just to chill for a minute and just sort of think. And uh, the thing to think is this. What's the, what, what do you want to carry away? What's the one thing that's worth carrying away? What's the one thing that's car- worth carrying away? What's the one thing that's worth remembering? What's the one thing that you've been reminded of? I'm well pleased with you. And then he goes straight in, it's sent then straight into the desert where he's tempted. And so many times as Christians, when we go through rough times, we think, why am I being tested? That has reminded me again. Okay. As God is with you, it doesn't matter. And, yeah. he, and it also says further on in one of Paul's uh, pieces that God doesn't <sighs> test you more than what yeah. he knows you're able to bear. But that just reminded me, can happen to Jesus, what can happen to us? Tested because he's yes. the son. Yeah. Yeah. What else is worth carrying? What do you want to carry? Yeah, I like to think. I'd just like to think that for the baptism, that Jesus came amongst the sinners. He didn't want to go. <laughs> I can't think. It's okay. You know. Do you, when he went to be baptised, he didn't want to go on his own and he didn't want to be anything special. He wanted to be amongst all the other people. Yeah. Uh, you know, even yeah. sinners. Yeah. Yeah, he came and he stood with us all. He didn't, yeah. no royal place, no special yeah. moment. What else are you carrying? Yeah. Hello. Rob. I was just trying to try and be like a fly on the wall when Jesus would be in the wilderness and how difficult it must have been to have been sat there face to face with with Satan as he was trying to tempt him and trying to get him to do things he wouldn't do. And I think sometimes we can forget just the power and the might that Jesus has and how strong he is and how his perfect faith in relationship with God actually changes things and yeah. it gives him the strength to kind of defeat Satan. And that's the thing, that's what I'm going to... Um, and the, the, you know, the other Gospels will tell us that the big challenge in the wilderness and the, and the, the, the tempting was about identity, about who are you? Yeah, you're okay. Yeah, just, just, a, rem- just a reminder, really, that, um, that our identity is not in what we do. And 
I think that's so countercultural, isn't it? That um, the, one of the first things people ask you is, "What do you do?" Mm. As if that's the thing they, you know, they're most interested in. What do you do? Because that's who. That's the biggest thing that defines you. And and I find myself slipping into that and thinking, "Okay, well, I, what am I accomplishing? What am I driving towards? What are, what are my goals? What am I what am I achieving?" Mm. And actually, this is just a reminder again that all of that doesn't mean anything. It's all about. It's already been done, hasn't it? God already says, with you, I'm well pleased. You might want to tell Ofsted that this week, I think, just to, <laughs> if it comes up. <laughs> um, I was just thinking, in contrast to what Rob said as well, like how Jesus is a lion, but he's also the lamb. And I was thinking earlier when Susie was saying about kind of, you know, who do we think Jesus is? But actually, it was really important to Jesus what other people thought of him. Like, not in a, a weak way, but kind of like, who do you think I am? Like, yeah. almost that intimacy of like, who do you see me as? And just the fact that whenever he... Um, you know, when, when God said that about him, like, he probably wasn't expecting, you know I mean? just blown away by the fact that God was pleased with him and just his vulnerability as well as his strength and power. Yeah. One more, two more. Yeah, Natalie? You've got to stay, only in the front two rows. That's the only place we're going to go next. <laughs> just that thought that Jesus stands with sinners. The Bible says that he was numbered with the transgressors, but he was without sin. And he wasn't thinking about his reputation or what other people thought of him when he was standing with sinners. And it's that encouragement to us that we stand with people as well, wherever they are. Mm. We stand and we show God's love without thinking about, well, what do people think of me? Because yeah. we're showing God's love when we stand with people. That's good. Last one. <laughs> More of a question, really, Neil. Mm-hmm. Um, we know when he was 12 or 13 and he was in Jerusalem and he, he was in, he said, uh, and he was left by his mum and dad accidentally and he said, I'm in my father's house doing, doing business. At what point do you think Jesus became aware of his divinity? Uh, almost now this, this breaking <laughs> open of heaven here and hearing this voice, this can't have been the first time that God, that Jesus has been told what his mission was. So, how would he have coped with this voice? Do we think this sort of thing has happened before? I hate these little questions. Um, <laughs> is it... Yeah, I mean, these are big questions, aren't they? When would he have known about his divinity? I've been aware of that. And, and to what extent was he aware of it, even? Um, so he could, he, he, this was could this have, the first time? And this could have frightened him. It could well this have. This could have been yeah. a, a, um, a really unsettling experience for Jesus, who then has to go and deal with, for 40 days, uh, yeah. going without food and, and wrestling with dark forces. In what way do you think he was prepared for this? Pondered him in her heart, yeah, treasured them. I think I think you're right. I mean, there's clearly that. Though it's clear as well that Mary is as confused by Jesus as anybody else in the gospel accounts. Um, I, I, 
I mean, these are unanswerable questions in some sense. I don't know. The answer is, is a short answer. Um, but not knowing has never stopped me answering before. So, um, <laughs> um, I think it's more important that he did know the other than when. Yeah. It was clear from his encounters with the Pharisees the way he spoke about his father and the way, the way he taught his own followers about his father. Yeah. It was clear by then he knew. He knew. He knew that Absolutely. the relationship he had. Yeah, and I think um, what people ask, what they do seem to be clear about is that this was a confirmation of something, not the creation of something at this point. That's what theologians do want to say. It's not that at this moment in the river, something new happened. It was something, this was the ongoing story of what, who Jesus was. I think what is clear is that Jesus seems to Act in, he puts himself in situations and he acts in certain ways that he is both acting out the story of Israel and the, the Messiah of Israel and he's changing it at the same time. So some of his actions are going to be actions that are to demonstrate who God is and who he, he is as well. This is our God. This is our God. If you folks want to come back and lead us in worship, we're going to pray together as you do so and uh, as we make our own response. There will be good questions. The questions are good. It's not that we shouldn't have them. But there will be some questions that are unanswerable and there will be some questions where we say, actually, it's, this is what we do know. But one of the things that I, you know, and I've said it three or four times now this morning, but one of the things that I was really challenged by was just that sense of, I want to, and, and it's not language I would really use of my relationship with Jesus, but I want to fall in love with Jesus again. I want to know him in a new way. I want to see him again. Because I'm convinced that whilst the, Society around us might have massive questions, and rightly so, about the church at times. I think that they're fascinated by Jesus. And I want to be someone who knows Jesus well enough, not only for my own sake, but well enough that I might be able to carry um, a way of introducing other people to Jesus really well. Lord, we ask for all of us, that that might happen, that we would be renewed, not just in a real, in a sort of an experience way, but we'd be renewed with a new, a new understanding of who Jesus is, the one who stands on a riverbank, waiting his turn with all the sinners, not afraid of being with them not afraid of being touched by them or jostled by them, not afraid of waiting. Jesus, the one in the river who hears the affirmation of the Father, who realises it's about identity, not about activity. Jesus, the one who's in the wilderness for 40 days on his own, battling 
to overcome the powers, to overcome the principalities. Lord, thank you for Jesus. May we follow him, we pray. In the name of Jesus.